I leaned over to Diana when he said outstanding, and I said, what, he wants me outstanding in the front? Or the... <laughs> it's always great for us to uh, be able to come out here. Uh, you know, the almost 39 years ago that we moved from Ontario to Winnipeg, and uh, Carmen, and I say this every every time, but I think it's really true. I mean, Carmen is like our second home. And we know so many of you. We have visited with you. We've been in your homes. Uh, some of you used to live in Winnipeg, but we'll forgive that. But, uh, <laughs> but it is always great uh, to see the congregation here. Uh, I just give you a quick uh, little uh, heads up or whatever. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Diane and I were down in uh, Oklahoma, and uh, one of the editors for the Christian Chronicle came into Winnipeg. Uh, he had actually been up in Dauphin. He was working on a story on the Parkland Crossing, you know, for the Christian Chronicle, but he wanted to stop in Winnipeg. So he met with Glenn and Gary and uh, Chad and, and Sean and Eva, and I don't know who else was there. But just happened to turn out that when he got back to Oklahoma City. We had a chance to go visit with him. Uh, so Diane and I and our daughter Valerie uh, went to the Chronicle offices there on the campus of uh, Oklahoma Christian University. And, uh, I, I made some reference to the church here in Carmen. And he looked at me like he had never heard of the church here. So I started talking about you guys, seeing if I could get him really interested in doing a study on the church, a story on the church here. So... We'll see if that happens, because I think your history, the length of time that you've been here, and the very faithful witness that you've been, I think would make something of really uh, great interest to the rest of the Brotherhood. So we'll see what happens. So one of the things about being the keynote uh, in a lectureship like this, you know, usually I get an email from Randy, uh, and it will say, Okay, we're doing this theme. Here are the topics available. Which ones do you want? Or which one? Uh, being keynote, I get an email from Randy saying, okay, we want this lesson and this lesson and this lesson. Uh, you get to name them. So I thought, okay, well, let's uh, think about this. Because, you know, as you look at the theme and the theme passage that we're doing here, I always love using a different, and I had it upside down. Uh, and you look at the theme statement there against the back wall. Uh, come on. Uh, that the theme is based on Galatians. The passage in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which are the uh, uh, five sessions. Uh, to each day, dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. And I started looking at uh, Galatians, thinking that, well, maybe what I should do is base my lessons as well uh, upon Galatians, but maybe to try to do uh, a little bit more with that. Uh, I like to try to get a little bit of explanation in, a little Bible uh, information in there just as a background. So uh, just very quickly we'll go through some things. Uh, Paul's letter to the churches of the Galatians, and we're not going to get into 
uh, which specific churches that would be included because you know that's like saying Paul's letter to the church in Manitoba are you talking southern Manitoba you talk northern Manitoba you know and that's kind of what the, the commentators do uh, I think there's some evidence for what it is but the message to the book of Revelation uh, the book of Galatians okay uh, is such that um, historically uh, it's been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty and if you think about the Magna Carta in the history of Great Britain and its role in really providing freedom uh, from the, uh, the power and even the tyranny of the kings, uh, that Galatians represents a very wonderful uh, a point in the life of the early church. Uh, it's also been known as Luther's book. Martin Luther really loved the book of Galatians. Uh, he spent a lot of time with it. And as he did that, and as he wrote, he wrote a commentary in German um, on the book of Galatians. And it's a very interesting work uh, to read through. Obviously, you probably, like me, would need to find an English translation of it, because I don't read German. But uh, there's some interesting things, and I'll talk about something a little bit later. Uh, but the book of Galatians was a very important part of the thinking that caused and led to what we know as the Protestant Reformation, where uh, many religious leaders and people uh, turned away from the, uh, the, the clergy system, the ritual uh, of the Roman Catholic Church uh, and, and some of the doctrine to try to find a more biblically based uh, faith. Uh, and so in Galatians, there is quite a bit of discussion about faith and works. You know, when you think about Galatians is only six chapters long, uh, but it is packed in many ways with ideas and sometimes you have to sit and read through it over and over and over again to start really following uh, what Paul is trying to do. Uh, but what has happened historically and religiously is that there are many religious groups and individuals who have developed uh, a, an approach to the Bible and to religion, Christianity, uh, that we kind of refer to as faith only. And they find that, at least they believe, that passages that talk about uh, works or obedience, uh, that Christianity is all about faith, and that's it, faith only. Uh, so what I want to do is to consider a bit of the background and then kind of dig into some ideas in the book. Okay, Galatia is part of what we would call today Central Turkey. Uh, it's northern part off the Mediterranean. Uh, Israel would be to the southeast. Uh, Greece would be to the west. Uh, it's an area that you know we kind of associate now as being um, you know, while you think about Turkey and what that means, it's, it's, it's a totally different 
uh, culture and life than I think we would probably understand. Uh, that Paul on his first missionary journey uh, traveled across and up into Galatia and started the first congregations there. Uh, they were, you know, Paul would go into a community and if there was a Jewish synagogue there, he would begin preaching in the synagogue and sometimes there'd be something happen, the back door would close and he would begin talking to the, uh, the Gentile, the non-Jew, uh, non-Jewish people of the, that community. Uh, sometimes they would be God-fearers, people who were Gentile, our Jewish backgrounds, I mean non-Gentile backgrounds that had become interested in the monotheistic God of Judaism without fully converting. Uh, sometimes there would be people who were just totally involved in the, the local pagan religions. So as they you know, would be going through and, and preaching and creating congregations as they left, uh, you think about you know, these, these baby churches where Paul's not able to stick around long enough to really get things going and in a, in a way that they would keep. Uh, and Paul had a very fatherly attitude toward these churches. You know, if you look through his letters, you'll see he felt responsible for them. And so when he would find that some of these young churches were having struggles or problems, he would want to write to them. If he couldn't go back and visit, he'd write to them and try to help them work through those issues or those problems. And so within the mixed congregations that were made up of, of Christians that were both from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds, and this really happened in that area of, of uh, Galatia, in that general region, is that Jewish Christians really wondered, you know, that Christianity was seen as an offshoot of Judaism. And the belief was, on the part of many, even back in Jerusalem, uh, that you had to, if you were a, a Gentile, wanted to become a Christian, you had to, for, for the guys, you had to be circumcised and then had to keep the law of Moses. And that issue we see perking in the book of Acts as well as Paul getting into in Galatians, uh, talking about some of the issues that related to that and some of the other places where that issue came up. So he's trying to deal with that problem. Uh, what we call Judaizing teachers. Now there's Judaizing come from Jewish. And so they were, t they were insisting that Gentile Christians had to become Jews as well as Christians. And let's be blunt. For Gentile Christian men, that was not good news. I mean, the thought of circumcision, but then also of being bound by all of the issues related, uh, the life, the whole thing. So with that issue in mind, you know, coming from Jerusalem, uh, and we find out that, that as Paul writes here in Galatians, and uh, we kind of see the background to that uh, with uh, Antioch, uh, that James, the Lord's brother in Jerusalem, becomes the origin for some of these issues. Uh, and 
causes, and, and Paul, our, Paul uses some time here in this letter to the Galatians to tell that, and tell that story uh, about even having to confront Peter. Uh, and he says that even Barnabas got caught up in this hypocrisy. So the churches of Galatia kind of have firsthand experience with the issues. And the idea of being told that they're going to have to be circumcised and to keep the law. All right. So Paul's frustration shows in this letter. I wonder sometimes whether Paul said some of these things with a sense of humor or if he was really that pointed in what he says. Uh, he, he accuses the Galatians of deserting the one who called them, who bewitched you. Isn't that interesting? And then accuses the false teachers of perverting the gospel and confusing these people. And in one of the most pointed passages you'll ever find in the New Testament, Paul says, I wish those who are troubling you would go emasculate themselves. So, given that, these six chapters are a, a plan, if you will, instruction for how to deal with the issues related to the law. Now, I want to say right here at the beginning that uh, if you look at the, the book, you'll find that the word works only appears 10 times in the whole letter. And that becomes interesting because think about Martin Luther talking about faith and works and all that came out of that. There's only 10 uses of the word works. But even more so, two of those occur when you talk about God being at work in Peter and God being at work in himself, Paul. So that's two out of eight. He speaks about God working miracles. Well, that's the third one. And the fourth one talks about leaven. You know, I know there's the influence of some people. You know, it doesn't take much influence. It doesn't take much leaven to leaven the whole loaf, right? And it doesn't take much negative influence to be really destructive. But, okay, so four of the ten references to works are not related to faith and works. But the other six, always the expression, works of the law. If you've had much experience talking to people from... Uh, faith-only traditions. People who don't believe in the necessity of any human action or, as they call it, work, they will rely on these passages without really kind of understanding how they're used or what they mean. The word work is never used to refer to obeying God, other than in the sense of these passages talk about works of the law. Yet I find almost universally when I talk with people from these religious groups, that's what they have in mind. That's what they believe. And so the question has to be, well, what is the text 
actually saying. Paul's whole argument is to show that we cannot be justified by keeping the law of Moses. Now, there are some very important ideas that come out of that. Uh, Paul uses the word justified. Justified means to, to make or declare as righteous. It means that for that to be necessary and useful, somebody has to be unrighteous. We talk about, about the passage in Romans, right? We know that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody's perfect. And Paul makes the point in this short little book that when a person violates the law you know, of Moses, the Old Testament, they become guilty of the law. And it's not possible for us to undo that. I mean, think about it. When you make a mistake, you know, I remember when I was back in school many years ago, I'd be writing with an ink pen. And that was before the days of whiteout. And you make a little bit of a smudge and you try to get an ink eraser and start trying to erase that on the paper and what happens? You get a hole in the paper. It's, yeah, the, the, the smudge is gone, but so is the paper. You can't undo your mistake. We can't undo our sin. We can never earn our salvation. We can never become perfect once we have been imperfect. And so part of what Paul is talking about here is what can a human being do to be right with God? Well, that's justification. That Christ justifies us, makes us righteous, even despite the fact that we are not. So where does obedience fit in here? And if you look at the book of Galatians, you'll find that the word obedience and obey are not used a lot. Paul refers to those under the law as being under a yoke of slavery. And if you understand what a yoke is, you understand he's talking about obedience. You know, you put the, the cattle, the oxen, under the yoke, you have absolute control of them, don't you? Somebody will probably say, well, I had one that wouldn't, you know. No. Okay. That's the idea, isn't it? That, that yoke is a concept of submission and obedience. One of the things that's interesting is that if you were to get into the, the, the language here, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I, I think it's really interesting that there are different words in the, new, in the Greek that are used for obedience. One of them has the idea of being under an authority. And that for a lot of people is, yeah, that's, that's my concept of obedience. But you know what? That's not used very often. That some of the words that are used that are, that are more important are words that come from words like being persuaded. Or of hearing. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, I think about, okay, parents, when you talk to your kids and you want them to obey, what do you say? Listen to me. Right? 
you're wanting them to follow and do what you're saying. You want them to be persuaded. But you don't want to resort to overwhelming authority in that case. So the, the dominant picture of obedience in the New Testament even is, is more of this idea of being persuaded or of hearing. So, uh, so Paul says in chapter 5 verse 3, every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. You can't just do part of the law. You're going to do all of it or none of it. And the problem is, is that as, as the Judaizing teachers are coming in and telling everybody, okay, you've got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Some people might say, well, I'm going to pick and choose. But the thing is about law is that when there is a law, you break one part of it, you've broken the law. And so, you know, we don't like to think of it this way, but for example... You're bombing down the highway at 120 kilometers an hour in a 100 kilometer an hour zone. You're breaking the law. And one who breaks the law, Paul says, becomes guilty of the whole law. Now, they're not going to prosecute you like you murder somebody. But there's still going to be that authority that comes to you. So... Paul is, is making the point that we can't just take part of the law. That if you're going to accept one part of it, you're going to have to follow all of it. And he says then that if you are trying to be justified, there's that word again, by keeping the law, you have fallen from, you've discarded, you've thrown away grace. Because grace is that favor from God that brought Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And so it's like seeing, you know, like, uh, like Bernard was talking about a little while ago. It's like trying to do it all by yourself. You're not going to be able to do that. Because you're never going to be able to get rid of the blot, the stain, the sin. So... You're going to be alienated from Christ. It's not going to bring you closer to him. It's going to take you further away. So at one point in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? The picture he has of the Judaizing teachers is that they are a destructive force in the church and in the lives of these Gentile Christians. They are being messed up. They are being confused. They are being discouraged. And they don't know what to do or where to turn or where to go. I, I, I can't help but wonder back at that point how many early Christians might have walked away from Christianity because of the effect of these Judaizing teachers. And Paul has to get across to the church how damaging these ideas are. So when you use the idea, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but, but when he uses that expression of who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth, 
I kind of have a picture of a race. And I don't know if you ever, you know, when you were in school, um, were involved in races. And, you know, you're competing with others. And every now and again, you get somebody on the, on the race track that cuts you off. And that causes you to lose your position, to lose your pace, maybe even to fall down. See, who cut, on you, cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? But the second part of this, if you'll notice, that Paul uses the word obeying here. And he's talking about obeying the truth. So in this letter that's talking about not being saved by works of the law, he's making a statement about obeying the truth. That there is some type of obedience that God expects, that God wants from us, and that we need to be aware of and we need to provide. As I started to look at Galatians and I can't tell you how many times I read through these six chapters over the last few weeks uh, because I one of the things I like to do is, is kind of feel like you're getting the flavor of, of what, what is going on you know you, you can't just sit down in a single read and do that and as I read through it I had a thought go through my head Usually that's when somebody says, did it hurt? But, uh, but as you think about uh, what, what Paul is talking about, uh, there are a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about obedience. I've made a long list, and I, I had 10 originally, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through all of those, so let's just, let's just highlight five of them. Uh, the first one, John 3, 16 we're familiar with, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, many, many years ago when I was working with a church in Hamilton, uh, I received a, a letter or a phone call. I can guarantee it wasn't an email. Uh, telling me to go go by and, and see somebody. There was, a, there was an elderly woman who had been converted uh, at a congregation up in uh, north of Toronto. And she had a son that was living in Hamilton, where we are, and she wanted me to go by and, and see him. So I went in to see him. And she had been sending him copies of the Gospel Herald. Uh, I wasn't really involved in it with it at that point. But uh, he was a very belligerent, faith-only kind of a guy. I was really looking more for an opportunity to argue than anything else and boy he just lit into an article that was in the Gospel of Herald he said, he said this thing misquotes the Bible I said pardon he said yeah if you look there's, there's a quote here from John 3 and it didn't have the verse in it verse number in it uh, and it had the idea that uh, it said, if anyone does not obey the Son, will not have eternal life. And he said, that's nowhere near what John 3.16 says. 
I said, well, that's not John 3.16. That's the last verse of the chapter in John 3. And I looked up, and he had a plaque on his wall. And guess what verse was on the wall? It was that very verse that talked about who does not obey the Son. Uh, John 14, two verses that are essentially the same idea. If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. That sounds like obedience to me, doesn't it? That if I really love Jesus, I'm going to do what he's asked me to do. Uh, one that I like is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things of, he suffered. Being made perfect, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I love asking people about what, what does that passage mean? That even Jesus had to learn obedience? And he is the author or source of eternal life? Uh, Romans 6, uh, Paul uses the idea there, and if you remember Romans 6, is, is a chapter that begins with Paul talking about the, the place of baptism. Uh, and the implication of baptism to be that we no longer continue to live the sinful life that we once did. And so he gets down later in that and he says, you, you know, you're the slave of the one that you obey. We're obeying one of two things. We're obeying sin or we're obeying God. There's no other grounds. But one other passage I want to touch on. 1 Peter 1.22. And actually we'll go a little bit further than that. But now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. That's the same statement that Paul made in Galatians. So that you have sincere love for your brothers... Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again of perishable seed, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. We obey. We're born of God. We have a new life. You know, and, and in fact, what I realize many years ago, is that the key to understanding the idea of obedience uh, for the Christian in the New Testament is that we live by principle, not by law. So you just think about what Paul was just saying there. That in terms of obeying the truth, how do we live? We love. Uh, love Paul says in Romans, does no wrong to a neighbor. Does God have to spell out all of the things that we shouldn't ought to do? Or do we understand a principle here? And, and so just look here. Okay. As, as you go through the New Testament, I think this idea is expressed in many different ways. When the New Testament talks about being born again, it's talking about having a new life. But it's not just the new life in the relationship with God. It's a new mind. So that, that gets echoed in Romans 12. To be transformed. See, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you may prove what's the will of God. 
That's one of my favorite images that we miss so much in English because the, the, the Greek word transformed is the word we get metamorphosed from. And if you're not following metamorphosis, that's the process where a caterpillar goes and becomes a butterfly. It's a radical transformation of condition. And Paul is calling for Christians to have not a rigid legal code of rules, but to have a transformation of their thinking that changes the way that they live. In Galatians, Paul uses the word freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not submit, again, to a yoke of slavery. See, who are you obeying? If you are obeying sin, then you're in bondage. If you're, if you're obeying God, you're free. Now, Paul says don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so that idea of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 becomes an important part of that. John, 1 John 1, uses the idea of walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. See, we don't go through life trying to walk in the light by walking down the line between light and dark. Do we? Or do we recognize that we want to be fully in the light? We want to be fully like Jesus. That everything that we do that we possibly can is like See, it's not by keeping a, a list of... One of the things that kept going through my mind as I was working on this lesson, I was thinking about when I was a teenager at church, we had a teacher, uh, our, our class teacher for the junior and senior high class, we were all together, and brought in a stack of books for us to study. And it was called Do's and Don'ts for the Christians, for the Christian. And it just systematically worked through all the things you shouldn't do. And I think every one of us came out of that class, out of that series of classes, with the idea of, of the fact that Christianity is about all these rules that constrict you and bind you, and that you have no concept of the principles and the life and the attitude. I mean, think about it. When uh, one, one of the things that you, you often see on, on Facebook, I get a kick out of it, is every now and again there'll be a video about an animal that's been, been tied up or bound or caged for all of its life. And then they will, somebody will come along and get a hold of it and release it. Well, you know, the first thing with a lot of these animals is they're not really ready to come out of that cage, are they? Just, that's their security. But then when they finally get out, what do they do? They're not unhappy. They're bounding and leaping, and if they're a dog or some kind of animal that wags its tail out of happiness, they are just exuberant. You know, think about people that you may have known who profess 
some type of religious belief, but where it is binding, constricting, oppressive, and miserable. And can you imagine them going up to somebody and saying, hey, I've got some good news for you. I want you to be just like me. No. We've been freed from sin by the blood of Christ. We celebrate that forgiveness and that joy. So, uh, so other ways it's put is seeking the good of others, being filled with the fullness of Christ, or Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Think about it. How do you describe the life of a full Christian? You don't provide a list of the, of the do's as such. You find a description like this. This is, this is a fruit garden that Paul's describing for us. That as a person matures in Christ, all of these different fruit become part of that become important to it. So, in this letter, in this short little letter, six chapters, Paul tackles, I think, some of the deepest, most important issues about misunderstandings of Christianity. Of how Christians should not allow themselves to be bound by trying to keep the law of Moses. Keep circumcision, everything else but rather how they can be free and what it is that God wants them to do now I meant to mention something earlier I'm going to throw it in right now I want you to remember a number for tomorrow night the number is 613 okay no fair asking me what it is afterward 613. Can you repeat that? 613? And I'll let you kind of stew on that for a little bit. But, but I thought, you know what's really interesting here is that, that in Galatians, Paul comes to a very important point. If he's eliminating the role of works, of having any part of our justification, our salvation, our relationship with God... Yet, he says here in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? How do we become sons of God? Through faith. For, that's a conjunctive statement. That links this statement with the preceding statement about how we become sons of God. For, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you how many people I've had tell me that baptism is a work. Paul had opportunity in Galatians to say that, but he didn't. Instead, he said that that is how we become sons of God, how we put on Christ, and how we become children of God. It's such a powerful and important point. God wants us to obey. But it is not the slavish obedience of 
keeping the Mosaic law. It is discovering the mind and nature of Christ and having it on our lives and sharing that and showing that to those around us. So tomorrow night, the lesson is called, There Ought to Be a Law. So we'll deal with that.